Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run StrengthGuildLiftForHope.org, and I'm an all-around outstanding guy. Outstanding. Outstanding. And I'm Sean Casey. I'm founder of Case Performance. I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also a strength and conditioning coach. So, Sean, you're a... Your background, being a dietitian like myself, that's going to be a decent segue into some news. <laughs> Strength and muscle sport news. Um, you probably heard about this. I don't know if you were talking to uh, Joey Antonio much. I'm, I'm assuming you were down at ISSN for their yep, conference. There this past week, or I guess a few weeks back. Yeah, out there in Colorado, right? Rick Collins, who's a lawyer that works uh, in a lot of sports nutrition and sort of muscle building circles, um, he actually just wrote an article for the Sports Nutrition Insider, which is a, a publication that Joey, I think, created or is, is at least heavy, heavily involved with. Uh, and it's called Nutritional Counseling and the Free Speech Update. Here's the story. And uh, actually, Joey sent around background documents straight from these courtrooms. Um, let me give you a quick precursor to this. Apparently, the scope of practice of a dietitian, which is only we can give nutrition advice legally without you know having a misdemeanor crime slapped against a person for example at least in most states that's almost being called into question and that's what this is about it says does nutritional advice raise an issue of free speech apparently uh fourth circuit case from north carolina may be of interest here it says in 2009 here's the story steve cooksey was rushed to the hospital in a diabetic coma he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes he was uh, advised, according to um, this background, by licensed dietitians to eat a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. He instead adopted a paleolithic diet that was high-fat and low-carb. So he kind of did the opposite in a way. And he got uh, great improvements on that regimen. He lost 78 pounds, it says here, uh, ceased his need for medication, regained his health. And subsequently, he started his own website called Diabetes Warrior. The site had three sections some of it was free advice. Some was fee-based diabetes coaching. And I think that's where the North Carolina Board of Dietetics got interested. Um, it says, Cooksey came to the attention of the North Carolina Board of Dietetics and Nutrition when he attended a nutritional seminar on diabetes and expressed dissenting opinions during the question and answer segment of the seminar. Um, ultimately, he was told to take down his fee-based portion of his site um, he, it said he feared civil and criminal action against him if he kept this up. Uh, he was told to address specific questions, uh, not to address specific questions on his site. Um, so he complied with some pressure from the State Board of Dietetics, but then he filed suit, apparently, in the Western District Court of North Carolina, alleging the board violated his First Amendment rights. You know, so we're talking about, like, freedom of the press in this case, I think, most applicable or free speech. It says uh, he claimed that restricting his speech uh, had a chilling uh, effect. Um, 
and the district court then dismissed his complaint. So it looks like they're siding with the state board, you know, that you better be a dietitian to get prescriptive. It says, however, the three-judge appellate panel, which included retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra O'Connor, held that the district court was in error. So they're siding actually with him and his right with, for free speech or freedom of press, perhaps. It says, uh, how far can a licensing board or other government authority go in regulating or censoring speech? Uh, and essentially, this article leaves off saying, stay tuned. So I don't know, Sean, what do you think about that? Scope of practice versus uh, people's right for free speech or freedom of press? You know, I think uh, free pre- like uh, putting information out there, obviously, I, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, giving advice is one thing, but when you start charging for advice, you know, there, uh, depending on a person's background, you know, I think that's where it kind of gets murky, you know, because anyone can say, yes, I know nutrition, and, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Uh, but, you know, um, where I have a bigger issue is where, the, you know, with disease-type populations, you know, I think for healthy populations, a lot of, you know, nutrition advice is great, um, you know, from your average nutritionist. Um, you know, I think where the dietitians really may have a little upper edge is in, like, the severe hospital-based um, severe hospital based clinics, you know, where they have um, traumatic conditions, things of that nature. But I think, you know, cardiovascular health, uh, you know, um, diabetes, you know, general health, you know, I know a lot of you know, uh, individuals who are not dietitians who are absolutely brilliant in the area. And so, Actually, yeah, if I can interject, I the, think that might be part of Joey's uh, impetus for running an article like this is I know he's sort of uh, gone back and forth with, you know, he said to me, for example, that there's an awful lot of people with graduate degrees in exercise physiology who are brilliant with weight control, metabolism, you know, that sort of intervention. And, for example, here in Ohio, where we're very, very strict about this stuff, um, you actually have to bring on a dietitian even to do weight management. And a lot of people, frankly, I think, are in, um, you know, in breach of that. They do weight management without bringing on a dietitian. I'm not actually uh, one-sided about this. I mean, because on one side, you, you know, nutrition tends to have a big impact on your body, body weight, for example. But it tends to be short-lived if there's not exercise involved, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, on the exercise, the magnitude is often less, or the rate of change maybe, but then it lasts for a very long time. So I think we need to have a lot more respect for this, but the problem, of course, comes into play is in that nutrition is a licensed profession, like physical therapy or nursing or what have you, and exercise is not. And I think that's where I start to tend to disagree you know, it's it, for example. I mean, you could almost half jokingly say you need a license to tell someone to eat a banana, but not to put some overweight, hypertensive guy on a treadmill and kill him. You know, so there's a lot of back and forth to this. I'm very curious to see where this goes because there are some states I've actually heard of case cases in uh, the court system where PhDs in nutrition were told they couldn't give nutrition advice because they didn't have a license to practice. And to me, this starts to sound a little bit bizarre. To be honest, you know, you have your doctorate in nutrition and you can't give nutrition advice. Um, so anyway, I'll keep listeners posted on that, that whole um, 
you know, scope of practice versus free speech thing. That's that's interesting stuff. And like I said, when I when I work with people in purely exercise settings, a lot of times they'll be like, I don't know, Laura, you seem kind of paranoid, you know, and they just don't realize that because of the licensure side of things, there's just a lot more regulation uh, and standards of practice and all this, you know, nutrition care process and all this sort of stuff. Um, and on the exercise size side, a lot of that just is, doesn't exist or it's certainly not mandated legally by your state government, you know, so I don't know. Interesting stuff with all that. Obviously, there are states where uh, you certainly don't need to be a dietitian to give nutrition advice at all, like California, I believe Arizona, uh, I think, um, some of the border states maybe. But anyway, that's touchy stuff. The other bit of news I have is quite different, and I just want to share this with you guys. I came across this through the American Society of Nutrition. They're sort of the the PhDs and the MD PhDs of nutrition. Um and this is about whole grains. And I think, Phil, you might have said something recently on our Facebook page. I can't remember about people loosening up about some of this stuff with, uh, you know, they go so paleo that they start basically cutting too many carbohydrate calories out or good sources of carbs or that kind of thing. But um, listen to this, the title of this. And this study makes me think back and forth as well. But this is Journal Nutrition 2013, June. A whole grain-rich diet reduces urinary excretion of markers of protein catabolism in healthy men after one week. So that really caught my eye. Less protein breakdown in healthy guys after just a week of consuming whole grains. Um, that's something that I'm thinking a lot of paleo people might not want to see. Um, this goes on to say that epidemiological studies consistently find that diets rich in whole grains lead to decreased risk of different diseases. Um, especially compared to refi refined grain diets, of course. They did a double-blind crossover trial. Now, this is the first thing I thought was a little odd. The title says healthy men have less protein breakdown, but they used 11 women and 6 men. So I would say maybe healthy people. I don't know where they get healthy men out of that necessarily, but uh, they did a five-week washout between the whole grain versus the refined grain uh, interventions. Uh, it says after one week of the intervention, the whole grain diet uh, led to decreases in the urinary excretion of metabolites related to protein catabolism. Uh, and one of their examples was urea. Now, I think that's a, that's a potentially iffy marker of protein breakdown, but okay. Um, and then also, strangely, it says there were no differences between the whole grain and the refined grain group after two weeks. So maybe those, those uh, improvements um, disappeared. I'm not sure. But in the end, it says these observations suggest that a whole grain diet may affect protein metabolism. Uh, that's from Ross and colleagues, again, Journal of Nutrition 2013. So I don't know. Potential um, good thing for whole grains. Now, this was from the Nestle Research Center. Um, it's in Switzerland. So I don't know. Maybe you could say there's a little bit of bias there. Who knows? Um, but this, I thought I saw something about this before, so I did a little bit of work. This same guy, Ross, from the Nestle Research Center in Switzerland, he uh, published a study called A Whole Grain Cereal-Rich Diet Increases Plasma uh, Betaine. Uh, I believe that's how you say it. It reads betaine if you just look at it. But anyway, British Journal of Nutrition, 2011 uh, in May. Um, it's, it's essentially the same study. They go through the same 150 grams per day of the whole grains versus refined grains, etc., and it raised plasma uh, betaine concentrations uh, in just one week. And 
if you're interested in this or you're, you haven't heard about it, this substance apparently, if you look at livestock models and whatnot, um, it does appear to help with either better use of the protein, uh, protein efficiency, and potentially body fat, uh, like fat oxidation and reduced body fatness. Um, here's one paper as an example of that. This is from a different group I wanted to find, not just all from the same guy, from Germany. Eklund and colleagues, Nutrition Research Reviews 2005, uh, says, uh, as a product of choline oxidation, betaine is involved in methylation reactions, moving methyl groups in the body. Uh, it's a methyl donor. And it says that may spare um, essential amino acids, like uh, methionine particularly. So it says a more efficient use of dietary protein may result from the methionine sparing effect of the uh, betaine, but also direct interactions with other metabolism regulating factors may be considered. It says um, there has been evidence that, again, it looks like betaine, but uh, betaine could have a positive impact on animal performance and carcass quality. Uh, if that sounds odd to you, I often look at, actually at livestock data when it comes to things like uh, muscle mass or fatness, because they're very interested, of course, in getting extremely muscled, arguably lower fat animals, you know, so um, I don't know. It looks like at least this week uh, and digging back over the last couple of years, there is some argument for whole grains, I suppose. So I don't know, that goes back and forth. Phil, um, I know you don't shy away from carbs when you need a fuel source. No, no. Yeah, I'm a carb junkie when I need a fuel source for sure. Um, and, and I do stay, gosh, I, like my average diet, I talk about donuts and crap like that a lot, of course, because, I mean, that's just a standout a bit. But my average, like last night, I don't know, we had a bunch of chicken and some rice, you know, and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So it's always junk. But, I mean, I, I don't. I don't. I think a lot of people, a lot of hard-training athletes now, do that too much. Yeah. And I've, I've seen by adding it into a lot of my people that it's helped them tremendously. And you'll see some people lose weight even um, from it because they're, they're expending more energy then. They're more efficient and they just feel better. Yeah. But. I've seen bodybuilders pull carbohydrates out of their diet almost entirely all at once and just lose huge amounts of muscle mass. I've talked about this on the show before. I really think there's something to that, you know, carbohydrates are protein sparing kind of thing. And I think it's not just carbs, right? This is suggesting... When you compare the whole grains to refined grains, um, there's either some plant substances, you know, phytochemicals or something in there that yeah. may be superior. So, I mean, I eat like uh, I've been tweeting pictures of a muesli cereal. You know, it's a mix of very almost raw whole grains and seeds and dried wow. fruits. And I don't know how you can poo-poo that, to be honest. <laughs> so... Oh, I agree. I agree. We do a lot of that, too. We get those Bob's Red Mill packages of the muesli that are... Yes, exactly. I love fantastic. that stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic. Sean, um, what are you sure. like on the carb and whole grain thing? You know, I'm big on how does your body feel for it. I mean, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, some people may feel better with or without gluten. Um, obviously, celiac disease is own thing, but in terms of the sensitivity, uh, you know, there may be some sensitivity. But what I always tell people do, you know, a lot of time when I talk with really the hardcore paleos, they came from eating a diet of pure crap you know, everything under the sun, and all of a sudden they switch to paleo, and they say, well, uh, grains are evil, white potatoes are evil, all that type of stuff. Um, but they forget, you know, they went from eating junk to, uh, you know, just a whole food-based diet. Uh, and so I always tell people, you know, uh, add one food into your diet one at a time, see how your body feels with it. If you feel better, 
uh, you know, it's probably good, which I find most people, especially if they're on like a carbophobic type of paleo diet, um, just as Phil said, adding those carbohydrates back in, you know, if they're from whole grain sources or whatever, uh, they end up feeling a lot better with them. So uh, yeah. that's my general thoughts. You know, I think, uh, and I'm, as you guys have talked before, you know, a lot of people like to demonize foods as being bad or good, when in all reality, it's, you know, moderation. How does your specific system handle them? Maybe, maybe you handle them good. Others may have issues with them. That's uh, you know, I, I always tell people, don't assume what works. What, I mean, same thing with training, you know, like with nutrition. What works for someone to get that exactly. peak, you know, squat, deadlift, or, you know, Phil talks a lot about how body form affects deadlift form. You know, what works amazing for one person could screw up the, the other person. I kind of take that same approach with nutrition. You know, what works really well with one individual may be absolutely garbage for, the, you know, the next individual down so the line. So many parallels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, for sure. You know, I do think it gets overstated a lot of times. Like, you'll see a food that says, you know, it has six grams of whole grain, you know, and they overhype this. And I often think, well, it's beneficial compared to what? Like you said, if you ate junk instead, like some of this, like a, a little wisp of powder of whole grain in your Lucky Charms, you know, <laughs> that might be better than just Lucky Charms without it, you know. But And I get, again, like you are saying, it's, there's such huge individual differences. I think, like for example, some foods get demonized. Well, if you have a problem with gluten, you tend to over-extrapolate that gluten is bad for everybody when, I don't know, maybe it's less of a problem for other people. Uh, so there's a lot of this, like, anti-marketing going on. You know, don't eat the grains because of the gluten. Don't eat the, the potatoes because they're high glycemic. Don't eat the white rice. Those are high glycemic. Well, at least the potatoes and rice don't have the gluten. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like you said, I don't know a practical way to address this stuff except realize that you're an individual with different tolerances. I like what you said about sort of doing an elimination or a stepwise introduction diet, you know, so you know how you respond. And get over it. You know, well, that's, I forget who I was talking about this this about with, but it, it wasn't many years ago that I remember buying bags of gluten. Yes, to add to food. Yep, to add to food to get a bit more protein content. Yes, <laughs> uh, so many of the low carb breads and stuff. Like you go into a health food store. There's one a uh, couple blocks from here, and it's got to confuse the consumer, you know, like crazy. I mean, on one side of the store, it's low carb, high gluten stuff, like it's good. And on the other side, it's gluten-free, like it's good. And that's got to leave a lot of people wondering, well, which is it? And I think Sean hit it on the head. It depends on, you know, your genetic makeup, I think. I think so, too. I think there's a lot to be said about that. (laughs) Anyway, so that's all all I've got. Like I said, interesting stuff about whole grains um, maybe leading to that conclusion, like we said. Um, Get over it. You can't hide from everything. You will be eating nothing, you know, so. I I got a couple things here. Um, the first one comes from CBS Los Angeles. Lonnie will love this. Um, at Alhambra High School, they're letting go of their whole football coaching staff because the coach knowingly let some of his athletes take the legal over-the-counter steroid steroid creatine. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, his argument is he did nothing wrong. He made the kids go. You know, they he had kids question him about it. Six kids. So he talked to him about it, and he said, that's fine. You can take it, but they all had to go home and get permission from their parents um, and stuff like that. I don't see what's so. irresponsible. Hey, listeners, go check out yeah. our inter- our interview with Joey Antonio, Dr. Antonio. Um, I, it's probably a year or more ago, 
<laughs> and he will rail against that kind of ignorance, right? That, what did that guy do? That coach didn't do anything irresponsible. Creatine is a nutrient. Your body treats yeah. it like carbohydrate in many ways. That's ridiculous. And that's what he's, you know, that's pretty much his argument. He said, we did nothing wrong. He said, we made the kids talk to their parents. It's a legal over-the-counter supplement. We did not break any school rules. So, um, but yeah, they're, they're canning him and his whole staff. So um, They need to bring in some, um, I, I think, expert you know, nutrition witnesses or something and be able to explain, you know, the error in letting this guy go. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other one is, it's worth mentioning, um, this weekend, right now, uh, is the Clash of the Titans, what is it, four, five, six, seven, number seven down at uh, the Branch Warren Expo Center um, in Houston, Texas. And it, of notable is uh, Benedict Magnuson is down there, and he's going to attempt to break his 1,015-pound deadlift record. Um, I haven't heard any news yet. Um, God, the, the training videos you've seen of him lately are just uh, uh, amazing. So, I mean, it looks like he can do it. It'll be interesting to see. I wish – the only part I wish is, like, the closest deadlifter they have to him that, that that's coming is, like, a 750-pound deadlifter. So it's like – it'd been nice to see him pull in, bring Benedict down, bring, uh, you know, Constantine, bring – you know the other big deadlifters, and and let them have it off. Make it, you, know? you mean make make it more neck and neck kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but you know, other than that, uh, Vashon Perryman's down there. He's hails from right here in Topeka, Kansas as well. Um, strong, strong kid. Uh, hundred and he, he deadlifted seven sixteen at one sixty five, six hundred pound raw squat at one sixty nine. Um, so yeah, it should be a fun day. Anybody who can make it down there, yeah, it's a. Uh, Good, good stuff. You know, people but, who's, who think all powerlifters need to be gigantic, and we always say, hey, weight classes, that's a good example. That yeah. is heroic performance for a, what I would consider a smaller guy. Yes. Wow. And, oh, yeah, he's a uh, – it's going to be amazing to see what he can do. As he, he's only 26. Um, so watching him come up over the years, and he'll I, I, could, I got to imagine he'll move up to like a 198 or 181, 198 over the years. He's going to have to. Yeah. See what he can see what he can pull off, man. He's a – He's a beast. So, and that's about all I got. Um, you know, there's been that, and uh, there's a whole group of people on the Iron Radio Facebook page that have joined together, and they're tired of bouncing around programs, so they've all made this little coalition, and uh, they're going to stick to one program for six months straight. Oh. And uh, they're they're they picked out five three one, so Jim Winler's program. And I went ahead and, you know, I saw them discussing it. I gave them all a six-month free membership to my forum so they can keep track of one another. And they're going to try and uh, not flip-flop around for six months straight and see what, see what they can get done. So you know, a bunch of, maybe that could it. evolve into an actual uh, study. I wouldn't mind doing something like getting some uh, approval. Obviously, there's limitations with doing this sort of thing with self-report, but um, yeah. we do that with diet all the time in research and get a data collection form that's sort of standardized that they could all follow. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be nice to get another group doing, as a control group, doing some kind of standard, I don't know, linear periodization model or something. I don't yeah. know. And, and uh, compare. Would be fun. Yeah. Cool. Fun. Um, yeah, so that'll be fun. You know, I just got let them all in. They're all going to start Monday. Mm-hmm. And they're all also, they're, they're not just doing the training program. They're all taking measurements, pictures, body fat, this and that. So, um yeah, it'll be a fun little group, and let's see how they do. We have so. some clever listeners. I mean, they self-organize. I know there was a group of them that were also uh, trying to make a, basically a library of all the studies that we mention on the show. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, and 
you know, I have a, a big stack. I'm looking at it right now. I, I could probably help those guys quite a bit, but <laughs> put their PubMed skills to work. They can figure that out. Most of this stuff comes across my desk. I usually say where I hear about it anyway. But, yeah, those, those yeah. guys, are, it's a good group. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what. Sean, how about if you quickly describe your uh, origins uh, with lifting and academics, then we'll go to break, and then we'll do our topic of the day, which is you brought to my attention, which is prolotherapy, uh, and people can hear about that in just a few minutes. But let's have your um, origin story, if you will, academically and athletically. My origins are uh, probably similar to most people uh, in the fact that uh, – Rocky Four was like the epitome of amazing movies for me in terms of inspiration for getting into the physical culture. You know, I can remember when I was a young kid watching it after school, then I'd go in my basement and start banging out push-ups, sit-ups. Uh, I really couldn't do many pull-ups at that time, so I just did arm hangs. Uh, but, you know, as I got stronger, and I, you know, I kept on getting interested in how to maximize human performance. You know, I played football and did track and field in high school. I uh, went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I picked up uh, a degree in exercise physiology. Um, originally, I was thinking like uh, more into physical therapy, but then I remember I job shadowed one summer with an individual, and although I respect the job they do, it wasn't like they were necessarily, you know, they were on more on the back end. You know, I was more focused on preventing the injuries from happening. Uh, and so then I just went with a straight kinesiology uh, degree, uh, worked with the UW Badger Strength Conditioning Department, uh, and I would say about my junior year uh, in co- at university, you know, I as we were kind of discussing earlier, all these laws coming into effect with with respect to uh, legal versus not not legal giving uh, um, dietary advice, and you know. As a coach, it was something I wanted to be able to do with my athletes, you know, be able to recommend supplements, nutrition strategies, uh, and things of that nature, and I didn't want to get handcuffed by legal reasons. Uh, and so I went, I picked up the, the dietetic degree, and then I worked, I interned at a couple different places when I was still at uh, Wisconsin. Besides there, I took about a year off, and I worked at a place called IMG Academies down in Florida at their Performance Institute. Uh, and then I went to and worked uh, as an intern at an organization called Athletes Performance, uh, which is based out of Arizona. Um, you know, I hit it off really well with the staff at Athletes Performance. Uh, they, you know, had me come back on and work, you know, as an employee with them. Uh, and then I started having some of these uh, health issues, which I'll kind of segue into our next segment um but you know once those started and then i just caught you know kind of uh on an individual basis coaching people and doing nutrition works with individuals okay so you chose the prevention side i i'm afraid in doing so you gave up a bigger salary yeah <laughs> <laughs> i realized that pretty quick <laughs> uh, you know i always think about that with my graduates i think oh you know it's noble what they do. What they do, I think, uh, their judgment is good, right? Let us uh, <laughs> prevent that heart attack instead of spending thirty grand to fix it. But all the money is on the reactive medicine side, you know, the physician's assistants or the, the, the physicians, physical therapists, you know. And then somebody does something noble like you've done, and I'm afraid you sort of sacrifice yourself for it. <laughs> yeah, I started seeing the dollar signs go the wrong way uh, when I made that decision. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go ahead. We've been at this for a bit. We'll go to break, and when we come back, um, 
we're going to learn about prolotherapy. Uh, I don't know much about it in, until I was introduced to it um, by Sean. So uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, welcome back, listeners. This is Phil and Lonnie and Sean Casey. Uh, Sean is going to share with us some new therapies for joint pain, tendon pain, that sort of thing. Uh, And, Sean, you mentioned before break that you had a little bit of medical background that may have interested you in this. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened was when I was out at uh, uh, working with athletes, uh, you know, I started having a lot of pain uh, in the low back, hips, and it wasn't going away, and I was kind of trying to train athletes while doing that. And uh, needless to say, it didn't work out well. And this was roughly in August, or I'd say July, August. And then, uh, you know, by October, I could hardly walk at all. You know, I kind of spent about 10 months, you know, kind of bedridden. Uh, you know, I went to doctor after doctor, and they were doing, like, the uh, MRIs in my back, thinking, you know, uh, the nerve pain was coming from... Uh, 
a disc or, you know, whatever being pinched or, or a nerve being pinched, I should say. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I was getting nowhere on that. Uh, you know, and pretty soon I kind of got uh, the individual style. Well, maybe it's, you know, a psychological type thing. Uh, and then, you know, by this time I was getting desperate. I mean, I went from a body weight of 185 pounds on a 5'7 frame. I was, you know, halfway built. Uh, at this time, you know, I couldn't move at all. I was down to about 130 pounds. Uh, and so any, you know, I, anytime I could sit or sit, you know, I would get in the computer, just try to find whatever, which may provide some sort of relief for me. And I came across prolotherapy on one of my searches. Uh, and at that time there was no really research on it that was, you know, on PubMed. Uh, it was more or less, you know, Hypothetically, in prolotherapy is this idea of injecting uh, an inflammatory agent into a tendon to uh, kind of jumpstart the healing process. Just like when you lift weights, you have little micro tears uh, in the muscle tissue. It increases, you know, inflammation. You have the growth factors kind of come to it, and you, you know, you grow stronger. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the theory with prolotherapy. And uh, in my head, you know, it made sense you know, from a hypothetical standpoint. Uh, and like I said, at this time in the process, I was pretty desperate for anything. I, re- you know, I realized it sounded very, you know, alternative, but I thought at least there's a physiological mechanism. Uh, you, you know, if, if somebody would have said drinking goat urine would have got me healthy, I probably would have done it at that point. Right, desperation, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, give me a double shot of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, this sounded healthy, so I went down, uh, and I started receiving uh, some treatments with it, uh, somewhere with kind of standard prolotherapy solutions, uh, and then others were with uh, platelet-rich plasma therapy. And I felt like I got a lot of relief uh, in my SI joint area uh, and then the lower back. I was still having issues with my hip. Uh, we did about three injections, and it got, didn't really improve in my hip joint at all, uh, but we then we did MRIs and it came out that I had bad uh, bone spurs in each joint that had more or less dug out the cartilage. So I mean, being that the bone spur was still there, you could have injected, you know, whatever into it all day long, but it's still gonna be scraping at the the, the bone on bone there. Yeah. Uh, and so that I ended up having to have some surgeries on. That's kind of my background in terms of how I was exposed to prolotherapy and where my interest initially started. I see. So is this the kind of thing that a family physician or uh, an orthopedist is going to know about, or is it so new that people would almost have to contact you to find out where you went? Um, you know, it's increasing in popularity. Uh, you know, although I kind of refer to it as a new technique, it's actually been around for a while. You know, when I was uh, researching the articles that I wrote on a little while back, just because I wanted to, you know, kind of share the information on it, uh, you know, they're, they were talking about, you know, back in ancient Rome doing similar. Um, it really kind of in the States became in like the 30s where they used it. Actually, dentists were using it for people who had um, uh, temporal mandible joint discomfort, oh. um, just kind of shore it up and then kind of died down again. I would say in the late 90s, it started kind of picking up uh, steam again to a now, degree. Sean- if I can interject, so is, this is picking up in popularity with actual medical doctors, not just among uh, chiropractors I, or some other group? I would say, um, well, chiropractors can't uh, administer, and I'm not sure if legally, if I'm guessing dentists can, but I'm not for sure there. 
Um, in terms of uh, doctors, uh, as long as you're an, uh, an MD, uh, you're able to do it. You know, I know um, doing the researchers, family practice, physicians, uh, there's DO, uh, doctor of osteopathics uh, are able to do it. Um, I know some uh, physiatrists, uh, which is which do, and that's why I was a physiatrist um, who's a kind of rehab medical doctor. Um, and that's good. But, you know, when I was uh, looking at it, my, I have cousins, who, one who went to the University of Wisconsin uh, for medical school and one who went to the University of Iowa for medical school. Uh, and, and they both graduated around 2010. And uh, the one from Iowa said she had never heard of it at all. Uh, and the one from the University of Wisconsin... Uh, said she may, you know, I think she thought it was mentioned maybe like once, like five minutes worth of one lecture, you know, throughout the entire medical school. So I don't think there's a lot of knowledge. I think there's, you know, a increasing awareness uh, of the therapy technique, but it's by no means still yet even mainstream within the medical field. Do you think the average physician is going to look at this like alternative therapy or like a reasonable adjunct therapy to, you know, regular treatment? I would say uh, at this point as an adjunct therapy, I would say five or six years ago, there's probably more of a, this is an alternative, more of a, you know, out there on the limb thing. Uh, but being that there has been more research uh, clinical studies showing, you know, positive outcomes with it. You know, I, you know, I've talked to different physicians who seem to be more of, you know, in certain conditions, you know, as an adjunct to uh, physical therapy, prolotherapy may, you know, increase the rate of healing. Uh, and I, you know, I think with a lot of athletes who don't want to miss like a professional, you know, take out four months of their sports season. Uh, because they had major surgery, they're, you know, I'm seeing more stories, you know, on ESPN about uh, various baseball, basketball, football players getting this done through their medical doctor. So, I mean, I think it's increased in popularity, but there's still a lot that really don't know a whole lot about it. Okay, now, months ago, we actually did a little review, sort of like uh, power lifter epidemiology, where we looked at which lifts cause the most injuries and that sort of thing. Is prolotherapy, and this is P-R-O-L-O, -O, correct? Yep, P-R-O-L-O. Okay. Are there joints where this might be more appropriate or tendons where it's more commonly used? Uh, it's been used. Um, knees, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of studies done in, you know, high, or with any, you know, anything research is not done, you know, in the high-level athletes for the most part. Um, but, you know, there has been studies with, you know, uh, uh, there's been, like, case reports at this point, a lot of, you know, case reports uh, with independent reviews showing, uh, um, like, uh, Achilles tendon. There was one, you know, a girl completely tore her uh, anterior, uh, one of the ankle uh, ligaments, uh, treated with prolotherapy. You know, they had independent MRI reports showing it to heal. Uh, there's been... In knee pain, a uh, fair amount of studies showing uh, increased uh, um, cartilage, meniscus growth in there. Probably the best research at this point with respect to prolotherapy has been in the elbow. Uh, you know, and obviously with bench pressing, a lot of elbow pain, you know, sneaks up there with like tennis elbow. 
type of deals. And, you know, uh, you know, they had one uh, kind of the gold standard clinical control trial uh, where they had 20 individuals who weren't getting any improvement through standard techniques. And so they had uh, one group do prolotherapy uh, and one group do saline, excuse me, just, uh, you know, water therapy injection. Uh, and they saw, you know, 8 and 16 weeks out, the pain scores significantly reduced in uh, prolotherapy, uh, not to the same degree uh, in, in the ones receiving saline. And then at the 52-week mark, they went back with just like surveys. And in the group receiving the prolotherapy, uh, six out of the 10 individuals had no pain. Uh, two individuals only had mild pain. Uh, and then, one, you know, and none of them really impacted activities of daily life. Uh, in contrast, you know, those receiving the saline injections, only one out of the 10 uh, had no pain. Uh, and eight out of the 10, or I guess nine out of 10, had, you know, significant interference. Like I said, you know, a lot of the research now is preliminary. As I was telling someone the other day, uh, you know, it's just starting to scratch the surface in terms of the formal studies. But, you know, there's a lot of case reports about it. Um, the other one that was done in an athletic setting was in terms of groin pain uh, that wouldn't heal. Uh, they had, uh, this was down in South America, I forget which one of the countries, but they had 72 uh, elite athletes, and they defined elite athletes as ones who were kind of on their professional circuit traveling from town to town. Uh, and is you know, relatively well controlled for case report type study where they before they started up the prolotherapy they had to fail a minimum of three months of traditional uh, traditional therapies for it uh, you know with physical therapy uh, things of that nature and they found within three you know usually two to three injections you know spaced about three to four weeks apart they were back you know performing at high level again and of these 72 athletes, only two needed to come back for more. Um, obviously, the downfall of that study is there was no placebo group, uh, which, you know, obviously, you know, isn't the best for that type of stuff. But sure. um, like I said, I mean, it's preliminary. And, uh, uh, but I, I think it's definitely worth pursuing. You know, I've only came across one study where there didn't seem to be a benefit, you know, versus like a control type condition. Uh, and that was one when it was used for to treat nonspecific back pain. Uh, and, you know, and uh, that's obviously a pretty common, you know, with lifters, bad form. But as you know, with back pain, there's so many factors sure. which could be causing the back pain. You know, is it a disc? Is it a strained muscle? Is it Or even bacteria, as we've talked about. Oh, sure. yeah, exactly. As you guys were mentioning, I remember a few weeks back on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so there, there's so much involved there. Um, but from what I've seen in my own personal experience, uh, you know, I think it's a route to try uh, if the alternative is surgery. Okay, so let's make this as applicable as possible. We've got a power lifter and his shoulders grinding. He suspects a tendon problem or maybe uh, something deeper in the joint, joint capsule, whatever. Is this something he's going to look into, do you think? Can he find, uh, um, you know, a healthcare professional to do this for him? I would say uh, in most states, you know, um, you can find healthcare professionals willing to do it. Uh, there's, 
I want to say there's a I, I think it's called getprolo.com that's kind of like a registry of all the prolo therapists state by state. Um, oh, I don't okay. remember the exact one off the top of my head. I can later repost on the Iron Web, uh, Iron uh, Radio Facebook page, um, but I think it's getprolo.com. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, um, I was just looking recently about um, platelet donations, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned this in, before about the platelet fraction of the blood being so rich in growth factors and that kind of thing. Uh, I know this is speculation probably on your behalf, but let's say somebody, you know, they have um, a benevolent outlook, you know, they want to get involved in charity or donations. They go, do you think it would be bad for them to donate platelets at the Red Cross instead of whole blood? Are they giving up something that might actually help their joints grow and repair, you know, that kind of thing? I, I'm a fan of uh, keeping, <laughs> not sound uh, selfish, but I'm a fan of keeping my platelets. <laughs> But so, uh, y- yeah, maybe know, just tell us a little bit more about the platelet, you know, um, therapy stuff. Yeah, and the platelet therapy is where it's getting more mainstream now, which is more or less an extension of what prolotherapy is. Um, and I would say probably the fir- I want to say the first big name athlete who kind of used the um, the platelet rich plasma, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, was Heinz Ward, who. Um, I forget if he blew out he blew out something in his knee. I forget if it was a tendon or a, a cartilage aspect or you know what it was. Um, but he and this was like three or four weeks before the Super Bowl. Uh, I shouldn't say blown out. That was probably a little dramatic on my end. But you know he had a partial tear or something like that, and he got the platelet-rich plasma therapy, and he was able to come back and play uh, in that game. Uh, and that kind of uh, where I first started hearing about. And then there was. You know, different athletes, you'll hear a lot of baseball athletes, uh, pitchers, you know, before they get Tommy John's surgery, uh, they'll get uh, the platelet-rich plasma therapy to see if that's able to um, be enough to hold them over so they don't have to miss a full year of the, the season. Um, so it's it's literally helping soft tissues regrow. Like you were saying with, yeah, you know, re- like with the prolotherapy, there's imaging. This isn't just pain yeah. or performance. Oh, there's yeah. Imaging there, there's imaging there's imaging uh, on the case studies showing uh, the reattachment. You know, I was mentioning earlier the the case study of the um, the the lady who tore ankle or uh, ligaments in her ankle. An uh, MRI reports came back showing uh, the therapy group rehealed uh, rehealed it, reattached, and was able to you know form a sufficient bond. Yeah. And she went on and play, finished out her high school career, and then she went and played college. It's just uh, nice to have that kind of objective outcome instead of just, oh, yeah, I think I feel better. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, anyone, you know, uh, uh, with supplements or, you know, I don't care what you're looking at, the placebo effect is definitely alive and large in a lot of areas. And it's easy to, you know, get that instant satisfaction, like, wow, this is amazing, I'm feeling great. Uh but there's nothing, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing there. You're four months later back in the same shape you were. Where these ones do show uh, the regrowth. Uh, there was different ones they were talking about. Uh, in one case study uh, with independent MRI reports where uh, ACL, a uh, complete tear of ACL, uh, they sh- showed it uh, reattaching with the therapy. 
And again, this is, you know, adjunct therapy along with physical therapy and stuff like that. Um, but there's definitely evidence supporting uh, that aspect of things. You know, what a lot of it's looking at too now is the exact mechanism by which the prolotherapy is working. Um, on one hand, you have the growth factor, strengthening the ligaments. You know, there were some early studies in the 80s uh, where they, more or less using animal models, uh, injected prolotherapy in one knee of the rat and the other knee of the rat, they got like a saline type solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, after, you know, 42 days, 30 days of injections, they more or less pulled on these joints to see when the, the joints gave out the ligaments, you know, de- um, tore from the bone. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found, uh, in probably the most widely quoted study in 1983 one, uh, 50 six percent larger growth in the cartilage in the one versus the other and a 20 and more importantly is the 27 percent greater bone bone ligament bone junction strength mm-hmm. um and this was using sodium morate which was like a fish oil derivative uh and then they kind of a uh, more recent study was in i want to say ni- or 2005 where they ran a similar type of study and they found that versus the control ligament uh, the tendon bone attachment strength was 136% stronger um, in, in the in the treated group. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, I think one of my the impetus here for for me to want to bring this topic to listeners is just awareness, right? I mean, it seems yeah. to be like although it's got some history. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to know what studies are out there. It's not just personal anecdotes. I mean, Phil, you've mentioned before that. Sometimes, you know, you just you ignore uh, tendonitis or this and that. Uh, and this sounds like something that might be uh, preventive and not just after Here's, a blowout and you're trying to heal it up. And the other thing, you know, if you think about a lot of the, a lot of the times when you have real bad muscle spasms, uh, you know, quite often the muscle spasming because it feels the joint's in danger. It feels the joint, there's too much, you know, laxity in the joint. Uh, they always talk about that aspect of things with injuries, and then if you you know, and so if you think about the prolotherapy, which is believed to be able to strengthen, you know, kind of shorten, take out the laxity uh, of the joint. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, if you scratch, you know, skin or whatever. If you don't work the tissue, it gets you know um, a little bit denser. It gets a little bit tougher, and it kind of shrinks down a little bit. Uh, and so there's a lot of thought of you know in high level athletes where they're continuously having muscle spasms, muscle strains, uh, it's related to, you know, potentially uh, having a little bit extra joint laxity, you know, and the muscles are spasming up in response to this increased joint laxity. I see. Yeah, I was just mentioning livestock, keeping track of that some, you know, kind of research with muscle growth and whatnot, but it reminds me of, like, uh, older bulls. I think you can't even get good meat out of them because they're so tough and chewy. Yeah. <laughs> you think of Phil. <laughs> you just got to turn them into hammer. <laughs> That's right. You just got to grind it up. But, you know, what you're saying reminds me of, like, um, you know, the fascial release therapy and all that kind of stuff. That mm-hmm. This just begs the question. Maybe we should get Keith Scheiman back on um, about self-care, you know, and <sighs> trying to realize that you do have this these micro tears and, over time, you probably um, get some dysfunction from all this sort of micro-scarring, you know. Here's, here's something interesting I figured I could add in here, just doing some searching. Um, there's an osteopath that wrote a book, Free Yourself from Chronic, chronic Pain and in Sports Injuries, and she's supposedly done thousands of 
uh, cases with prolotherapy and the PRP, and she wrote a book about it. Um, oh. If anybody's interested, it's 19 bucks, but it goes into all these cases and then what prolotherapy is, who it's, who's a good case for it, this and that. Um, and the neat thing is you go on the site, and if you hit, like, hip pain, it'll bring up case studies and journal articles and stuff like that. You can go to each. Like, I can hit knee, and it brings up some stuff from PubMed and things like that, all these studies and, and whatnot mm-hmm. that you can look at. So mm-hmm. um, if you're interested in that, I mean, it looks like it'd probably be a pretty interesting read, but prolotherapy.com. I see a lot of options, like we were talking about with the antibiotic injections for lower back pain. All this kind of stuff is, uh, it seems like it's swinging away from surgery. I know some people are just too eager, uh, you know, to go under the knife. And some people are just the opposite. And they really don't want to fool that. Or even they ignore it. Like, Phil, you and I, I still, you know, <laughs> have, like my one elbow uh, that's yeah. not repaired is just screaming at me these days, you know, and I don't know, maybe something like this is starting to intrigue me, you know, because I'd, I'd love oh, to rebuild those Exactly. The first thing I thought of, I have a client that just came back. She hurt herself at work, and they went in and did an MRI and stuff. She has a slight tear in, in one of her tendons in her shoulder, and, of course, automatically like, oh, we're going to surgery. And, you know, then another doctor's telling her, no, you don't need to do that. Let's just do uh, physical therapy and let that thing heal. And, of course, the one doctor, I mean, he's a surgeon. Surgeons, it's their job. They like to cut. But, I mean, he's not wanting to do, he's wanting to do full-on surgery. Not, uh, he's not going to do any of the um, less evasive techniques or anything. It's like, come on, you know, it's, it's a slight freaking tear. Give her a chance here before you yeah. cut her up. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I just sent her a link and said, hey, you should look into this. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, Phil, I know you can corroborate when I say that once you have surgery, you're usually never quite the same. I mean, if you were, yeah. if you were lucky... You're glad you had it. You're probably 80, 90% glad it was done. But yeah. the other 10 or 20%, there's a little weirdness there. Exactly. I mean, that's the same thing. Like, me and my hip, there's no question. I mean, the doctors have told me, it. you have to get it replaced. But it's they're, they're also saying, you know, wait as long as you possibly can. Right. You know? So, I mean, yeah, I'm dealing with pain daily, but it's, it's better to not. Anything you can do to not be cut up is... Probably pretty good. Right, career longevity, right? Definitely. It should be the last the last straw, in my opinion, is to go into the knife. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, it's kind of like, because uh, after I wrote these articles and posted them on the my, uh, my website, you know, I had different people contact me, and I was like, okay, you know, worst case scenario, it doesn't work. <laughs> You're still thinking yeah, exactly. what you were, you know, before you attempted it, so. Yeah. That's actually, I was going to ask, so no real side effects then? Not, I mean, the, the only side effects are that related to any time you have a needle prick into your skin, you know, the bacterial infection. I mean, when you have to sign the waiver, but uh, I could not find anything uh, 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 making me think that it would cause side effects. You know, and myself, the only side effect is you're going to be pretty dang sore for six or seven days because they just ramped up inflammation. Uh, yeah. in the joint, which is as counterintuitive as it is, like, geez, I'm trying to get healthy. I'm now super inflamed here for a week. But, uh, again, it goes back to, you know, especially connective tissue, which doesn't have a lot of blood flow to start with. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you need to kind of, uh, I don't want to say restart the healing process, but, you know, give it another chance, you know, load it up with growth factors, you know, try to get some increased blood flow, uh, to the area and just, you know, super saturated, you know, with an inflammation of 7 to 10 days. So, I mean, that's the only, I guess, negative side effect is that you will be sore uh, 
for for me, it was about seven days. I would say the first, like, three days, is like, holy cow, what the heck just happened here? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it was, uh, but, you know, once that initial three days got over, it was just, like, a general soreness in the area, kind of like uh, you got a bruise or something, like that type of a soreness. Right. Uh, and then with, you know, seven and ten days, uh, it was pretty much uh, felt like how it did beforehand. And, you know, in a sense, you know, the inflammation healing process is, you know, kind of the uh, 21, you know, to 30 days. Uh, you know, by the end of that 30 days, you know, like my back and SI joint where I felt like I got real good benefit out of it. Um, by the end of the 21 to 30 days, it started, it, it felt better than what it was prior to um, the first, you know, prior to getting the shot to start with. And that's why most prolotherapists, you know, I was, uh, they go about four to six weeks out, so you can go through an entire, you know, inflammation healing cycle in the tendon, and then they repeat it. Uh, I was also looking at different guidelines because, you know, what my prolotherapy did, I was curious how, you know, how that reflected other ones. Um, and kind of the general guidelines, what I could find in the research was uh, injections every three weeks, or th- uh, about four, three to four weeks, uh, and if you go three times and see no improvement, then look to alternative routes, uh, you know, like surgery or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. But they said, you know, give it three times because uh, if you have a bad tear uh, or, you know, more laxity, it's going to take a little while to kind of cinch things back together again. Um, and so that was kind of the recommendation they were going with in the, in the literature uh, in regards to it. Uh, the other downfall I would say with it, and it's not in terms of side effects, is at this point there's not a lot of health insurance groups that cover prolotherapy treatment. No. Um, you know, it, it's still on the alternative route uh, with that in that respect. And so a lot of ones like with mine, uh, they cover the doctor's visit, uh, the doctor's, you know, diagnosis, like that whole spiel, but the actual um, injection... Uh, itself uh, was was needed. You had to pay for it out of pocket, which um, that is the only drawback outside of the initial tear. We talking about cost wise? Um, cost wise, it depended on the joint. I uh, I want to say when I had mine done, uh, and of course I had the platelet rich plasma therapy, which was more expensive. Um, but it was, you know, a couple hundred dollars a session. That's not how yours was in a hip, too, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I had it done. I mean, that's a pretty extensive deep joint. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, and they went, you know, through the hip. Uh, and then, like I said, I would say on average, depending on the joint you pr- and, you know, what pr- practitioner you're going to, uh, it's probably going to be 150 to, you know, $200, which, uh, you know, if you have to do, you know, th- but if you get three injections, uh, pain free, you know, and if you if you want to compare six hundred dollars of that versus the cost of you know surgery, which uh, I've had a fair amount of surgeries, I know you have, you've had a fair amount too, yeah. Phil. Um, you're looking at depending on what your deductible is, you know, five thousand dollars, a thousand dollars, right there. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think if you if you have the means to do it, uh, I, I think it's definitely great to do as an alternative route to surgery. 
because uh, you know once they do surgery, they can't undo the surgery. I mean, it's done. Where here, uh, a very high reward, low risk. Um, yeah. You know, proposition. Right. Hey, Sean, I'm, we're just about out of time, so I got one last question. Is this therapy, do you think it's on the upswing, or do you think this is going to languish as an alternative therapy that, you know, your orthopedist or physical therapist or whoever is just destined probably not to know about? I think it's definitely on the upswing. Uh, like I said, and that's just because there's more research coming out about it. Uh, when I initially had this done back in 2008, uh, would have been summer two thousand or wait a minute, roughly two thousand nine. I remember I went on PubMed at that time trying to find some sort of um, research on it. And outside of like you know, uh, I think I found like five studies came back when I put in prolotherapy in the search results. You know now there has been uh, twenty you know twenty plus re- studies on it, which is not like hundreds of studies, but I think as more studies get published on this. Uh, and if they continue to show the positive results of what the studies have up to this point, you know, I think it'll be something that medical insurance will end up picking up uh, just because the fact of, you know, everyone wants to save money. Uh, and if you can do this cheaper than doing surgery, I, I think it's definitely a route that you're going to see an up- increase in popularity in the years to come. It sounds like it might be worth just even finding a few of these studies on PubMed, taking the abstracts to your doctor and saying, here, have you seen this? What do you think of this? You know, maybe just create some awareness with the... Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. That'd be an excellent uh, excellent way to do it. And, uh, and that's actually, you know, the reason why I wrote the articles was uh, just to increase the awareness of it and what has been published up to date. Okay. Hey, uh, last thing. What's the name of your website so people can go check out these articles? It's uh, caseperformance.com, C-A-S-E, performance.com. Perfect. Well, okay. Uh, Phil, do you have anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Well, thanks, Sean, for being on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, You know, I uh, greatly respect the work you guys do and putting out uh, free, great information. So uh, full compliments your way as well. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye now. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the -the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, 
This is what the liter- literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.